Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet-Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss some of the latest news that we are outraged by and optimistic about. And we speak to President Hilda Heine of the Marshall Islands. Thanks for being here. So this week, we're going to speak a little later on to President Hilda Heine from the Marshall Islands, one of the world's most vulnerable countries in relation to climate change. But just before we do, we're going to dive into some of the most recent news that's been coming up, some of the things that have been getting us outraged or optimistic around our response to climate change. Christiana, where are you this week? What are you feeling? Well, um, I've been rather obsessed about the Adani coal mine in Australia for a while. That's that um, huge coal mine, that right? That huge coal mine. It's the, um, it, it's the, it would be, if it actually opens, it would be the first coal mine opening in that part of Australia in the last 50 years. Um, I thought it and, was rejected. Well, we thought it was rejected, right? <laughs> but the uh, election in Australia has actually tipped that. Oh. Um, and I, I'm both outraged and optimistic about that. Um, I'm outraged because the new government has now given permission, all the environmental permissions for that mine to go forward, um, despite the fact that that whole area of Australia has been in a drought for three years. And they're very concerned about where the water is going to come from for uh, for the um, extraction of the coal. What I'm actually optimistic about is the news that I just read, I think yesterday, that there are engineering firms in Australia that are refusing to work in fossil fuels, in particular in coal. And so that really presents a very, very interesting situation there because obviously the owners of the coal mine were part of the um, campaign. They financed the campaign in uh, in Queensland because they said we're going you're going to get many more um, many more jobs with this coal mine opens. But the fact is that many of the engineers who have jobs, and especially the young people who want jobs and who are training, they don't want to work anymore in coal um, or, in fact, in, in, in oil and gas. So it's a very interesting situation there between the, the push of the past mm. um, and the pull of the present. And we don't know where that's going to end up. But it's a very interesting microcosm of the struggle that we're witnessing around the world uh, to, to figure out how do we move beyond fossil fuels. That's, and that's really interesting that, I mean, I had no idea that was back on the agenda because this was a huge thing a few months ago, right? This Adani mine that would, so, I mean, I remember some terrible statistics like blow the 1.5 degree budget just totally. all on its own, right? Is this connected? Because I was also reading that China's coal use is actually going up again at the moment. Do you think it's connected to that? Or? Well, it could be, although let's remember that the owners are Indian, the owners uh -huh. of the Adani coal mine. So they are expecting to build a railroad from the Carmichael coal mine all the way to the port um, and then uh, put the coal on a boat to India. So they're expecting to sell to India. Now, India is actually reducing its uh, demand for coal. So whether they're now going to, you know, redirect their ships and right. sell to China, we, we don't know. 
it is kind of astonishing, we're going to talk to Hilda Heine a bit later, that this is in that same part well, of the world. Well, exactly. That's the point, right? right? That's why I think that it's, you know, it's it's good to have that context when we speak to, to Hilda Heine, because this is the Pacific. This is right. the largest country in the Pacific. Um, that's their this, neighbors, right? These are their neighbors. This, is the, this would be the largest negative contribution to uh, climate change, i.e. the highest emissions coming from, uh, from their neighbor. Um, and... The other part that they have to figure out is, so what do they do if all of these islands actually go through the tragedy yeah. of losing their land and they're faced with these huge migration waves coming into Australia? Paul, do you want to come in? So, Christiana, what I think you said about the engineering companies not wanting to work on coal mines is incredibly inspiring. And there is this thing about people like standing up um, you know, the Marshall Islands are low-lying islands. They are they are the ones that climate change is coming for first, you know. The sea level rise is, is going to get the Marshall Islands first. And we have to stand with them, like those engineers stand with them. Very famous poem, I'm just going to read you, by Pastor Martin Niemöller. Uh, it's, it's really about the Holocaust. And it says, first they came for the communists and I didn't speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists and I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. And that's where we are right now. It's, there's a line in the sand and it's so important that we focus on that mine. It must not open. Is your intelligence, Christiana, that it's going to be approved or we don't know? Well, it looks like the government is definitely moving toward approving. Uh, they've already given all the environmental uh, permissions oh, to wow. it. Um, so at this point, it's no longer a policy question, which it used to be. At this point, it's going to actually have to uh, either open or stay closed, stay unopened um, on the economics. Um, right. And that's that's very tricky, right? Because it depends on what do you include in the economics. Obviously, if you include all of the externalities of, you know, the, you don't do it. You don't do it. But you know, our our science of economics is just so pathetic, still in the 18th century, that we're not valuing all of the damage that is going to be done to the local uh, the local territory, to local health, to um, underwater uh, residents reservoirs, underground water reservoirs, um, and certainly to the um, to the global environment. Yeah. All right, Australian friends, you got your work cut out. Well, tell us what you need from us. <laughs> you know, no one ever talks about the economics of child labour. You would look really stupid con contacting your pension fund saying that you wanted more child labour in the portfolio. Why is it we have to limit ourselves to economics? It's just dangerous from a climate change point of view. We mustn't open the mine. Coal is on its way out. It's a ridiculously dangerous product. We know that now. Um, you know, we're closing the mines that we've got. We're closing the power stations we've got. How can you open a new coal mine? It's absurd. Yeah, but in so doing, Paul, you have to take into account that there are people in that whole Queensland area who do want a job yeah. and uh, and who have, you know, been counting on this for 
actually eight years, because this has been a conversation ongoing for eight years. And if there are 1,000 or 1,500 people who come in to help open the mine, that means that all of the little restaurants and the hotels and everything and the construction business also gets a lift. So it's not quite that easy to say it cannot open. Uh, If it were, we would be in a different situation. We have to take into account all of the local economy issues that are just as important. Can we get civil society across the world to promise to go on holiday to that part of Queensland in exchange for not opening the mine? Probably a silly idea. Sorry, Tom. (laughs) All right, we're going to have to move on from this. Paul, tell us how you're doing this week. What are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling uh, a little bit outraged, to be honest with you, um, about uh, the, this business round table. They, they had this uh, announcement in August where they said the purpose of the corporation was to, uh, you know, support society. And I really believed in that and I was excited about it. But I reread the statement recently. Support and, uh, society rather than just create profits, right? Exactly. And, and it, it's a wonderful thing. It's like a yeah. really important evolution. I got very excited about that statement. It's exactly the right thing. The business round table is 180 of the, of, the, of the chief executives of the biggest companies in the USA. And yet, just rereading that statement, there's not a single word that I can see about environmental protection. And so that did outrage me, unfortunately. Sorry to say. So, so if it's not about profit and it's not about environmental protection, what are they trying to evolve the role of the corporation to I, be? I mean, they are actually talking about, uh, you know, uh, improving, uh, you know, wages for employees and 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 through the supply chain and that kind of thing. You know, it's 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 a uh, it's a good thing uh, to see that the, the, the corporation run more in the interest of society. But uh, as everyone on this podcast, I know and almost certainly everyone who's listening to this podcast agrees, you can't extract the the risk of climate change and ecological catastrophe um, from human well-being. So it's just, a, it's it's a great move forward, to be honest, but, uh, but it, it, it's lacking. And that did outrage me, I'm sorry to say. Paul, why do you think it was omitted? Or do you think it was omitted? Or, or, or what's, what's behind that? Well, I'm sorry to say that there is, uh, you know, a, a fundamental politicization of... Uh, this climate change thing in the US, uh, which is going to pass for sure, because everybody understands that uh, it doesn't matter you know, how you vote, you're on little spaceship Earth. Um, but we're in the late stages of, of a kind of fight between entrenched um, uh, fossil fuel interests and energy intensive industries, kind of, for want of a better word, against the public interest. And in that fight, unfortunately, uh, the Business Roundtable got to sort of say, the social thing without saying the environmental thing. And that's a pity. That's a missed opportunity. They'll get there. But yeah, yeah that's my guess is, is, is lobbying. Um, I'm aware of time. So shall I just move on to, uh, there was one thing I wanted to bring. And, you know, in all honesty, I'm sort of struggling to identify whether I'm outraged by it or optimistic about it. And um, it's a study that came out in that great climate change journal, Good Housekeeping magazine. And it, sh- it was this um, quite extensive piece of um, research that looked at the attitudes of children um, towards things they were concerned about. And in a way, so eight in 10 young people between the ages of eight and 15 are very concerned about climate change right now. And in fact, more concerned about it than anything else. think it will have a serious impact on their lives. And one in five say that they worry about it every day. And when you dig into the underlying data, they're actually quite um, 
developed in their thinking about it. And they were sad about living a life without polar bears, without living, living a life without rainforests. More than half of them mentioned that. Um, and their biggest concern was that um, the air in cities uh, is making them sick. So I was sort of, um, in a way, optimistic to discover that there was this level of appreciation for such an issue that is going to have such a shaping impact on their lives. But it's also sad that children and young people are having to experience such concern for the future. I mean, I have an eight-year-old daughter and she is, you know, she's very concerned about climate change. And I can sort of see how, as she grows up, that could develop into a sort of, you know, a sense of anxiety about it. And I find it really troubling that young people, that children have to have this now as such a fundamental part of their worldview and that they're sad about living in a world where so much is going to be lost. So that makes me also profoundly sad. Um, but I have two questions for you, Tom. First, do you know what the universe is of those children? Is it global north or does it also include global south? Because I kind of suspect that not just children, but people in general in the global south are not quite as acutely aware. So that's one question. Good question, yeah. Um, and the other question is... Um, while that is profoundly upsetting to think that our children are living in their heads, this nightmare, right, um, that they foresee is not just going to stay in their heads there, it's actually going to be their reality. Is that, you know, being these darn stubborn optimists that we are, <laughs> is that, as you were beginning to say, not actually good news that yeah. there is that awareness and that conscience? And how do we move it then? How do we move it toward activism, toward taking the decisions, toward talking to their parents who may be CEOs of companies that can do something, who may be CEOs of banks, of um, investment companies, because honestly, there still is the option to have a better world. Totally. Totally. No, absolutely. And I think that's why I said I couldn't quite work out if I was outraged by it or optimistic about it, because I think both are definitely evident in there. Um, I think, I mean, I think I probably it didn't say I did look for what the universe was, but I'm sure it was probably Global North, given that mm. it was Good Housekeeping magazine. It made, you know, UK, US, that sort of thing. Which in so, itself is quite tragic because it's the Global South that is going to be gonna most be impacted. affected. Absolutely. No, you're right. And it would be interesting to see if anyone knows of other studies in other parts of the world, we'd love to have you write to us and tell us. Um but you're absolutely right. I mean, this emergence of this issue, and, you know, it's not only that, but we have Greta in large part to thank for elevating this with young people, um, is essential. And it might be a little sad and, and make us a bit outraged that they have to face this, but it's better that we face absolutely. it and we feel a bit sad and that leads to a positive outcome. So net-net, it's a good thing, but it is something to face. Paul. I can't, I can't uh, really uh, avoid thinking that uh, it's better that uh, younger people experience some anxiety now about the future, then uh, out of the blue, you know, the extreme weather on the television gets worse and worse and worse. And, 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 and kind of, you know, uh, adults are like pretending like it's not happening. You know, you teach a child to be frightened of the road and frightened of cars, you know, you don't want them to run into the road uh, without being frightened. So, you know, there is a role for fear in, in preserving us, unfortunately. So I think, you know, I'm more optimistic about that. 
All right. So we are now going to go and speak to President Hilda Heine. President Heine has been in office in the Marshall Islands for some years now. And actually, interestingly, um, she just made a tour to the UN, to the UN General Assembly. I believe she's back now uh, in the Marshall Islands. Uh, a state of emergency was declared about climate change in the Marshall Islands within the last few weeks. So this is very much front and centre. Um, do you want to say anything, Christiana, about Tony de Brum? Yes, well, Hilda Heine, uh, president of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, follows a very long tradition of the Marshall Islands that was started actually by Tony de Bream, who was at the time Minister of Foreign Affairs um, and who has very sadly passed on since then. But he was the person who really had the original idea and the impetus to organize what became known as the High Ambition Coalition, mm. which ended up being over a hundred countries that marched in, not the countries, but the ministers representing the countries, <laughs> marched in um, elbow to elbow and arm to arm, marched into the Grand Hall uh, where we were negotiating the Paris Agreement and are largely credited correctly for the ambition that is embedded in the Paris Agreement. And since then, the Marshall Islands um, have uh, have not given up their leadership. They're totally punching above their weight uh, and they continue to remind us of uh, the responsibility that we all share. I mean, that's amazing, the degree of impact that such a small country was able to have on the global response to climate through that effort that Tony made in 2015. And, and you're absolutely right, President Heine continues that tradition. So uh, let's speak to her. Let's do. President Heine, thank you very much for taking time in a very, very busy week here in New York uh, to join us on Outrage and Optimism podcast. And um, I have to say the reason why we call our podcast Outrage and Optimism is because we're convinced that we need both the outrage about insufficient action as well as the optimism about um, the possibility to increase a speed and scale so that we can uh, address climate change. And, and many of our conversations are actually about how both of those complement each other and would be, I'm really interested in knowing from your perspective whether you see those in a balance or maybe not. But in any event, thank you very much <laughs> for, uh, for being with us. And let me just start by recognizing the years of leadership that have come from Marshall Islands. In fact, you step into very important <laughs> shoes uh, of leadership of Marshall Islands on, on these issues, as, as far as I can remember, in fact, and I've been at it for, for quite a few decades. And the Marshalls have always uh, had this amazing uh, leadership punching way, 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 way beyond your weight. Mm. Um, and so how, do you remember when you stepped into the role of, uh, of president? How, how was that? Because you were stepping into shoes of governing your country, but also being a spokesperson for vulnerability and for climate justice for the entire world. <laughs> Not easy shoes to step into. Well, first of all, I love the, uh, the title, Outrage and Optimism, uh, that's uh, very interesting, and yes, we uh, we need to keep those in balance. Uh, we have to be outraged about what's not happening, but we need to be optimistic. Otherwise, you know, uh, we give up, and I don't think we can give up. 
Um, to your question, yes, it's been very um, interesting and difficult uh, shoes to fill. You know, you mentioned uh, we have, of course, uh, Minister and Ambassador Tony De Bruyne that uh, that Good really friend who we all yeah, remember. We we missed him and his uh, passion and also his leadership mm. on climate change, and, mm. he, and he's actually the one that put the Marshall Islands. Um, agenda and our uh, issues on climate change and nuclear uh, legacy out exactly. there, out there into the into the international community. So yes, uh, coming into this position uh, and then uh, stepping into those shoes mm. have been very, very difficult. And I had to uh, to uh, fast learning on uh, what this is all about. And uh, uh, in addition to being a leader of a country, which I wasn't aspiring to become, but it kind of. <laughs> Uh, kind of happened, there. yeah. Life put me there, and I had to make the best of it. Uh, uh, take the opportunity and try to do the best I can. So we're uh, we continue to advocate, as you know. We continue to speak out about our issues, and uh, um, uh, we thank uh, people like yourself, who've been, uh, of course, also a uh, leader in this uh, in this uh, fight on uh, on the climate crisis. So um, b- before we get into climate change and what's being done here in New York, et cetera, I, I, I'm actually a little bit curious. Um, it is not very often that the Minister of Education of a country uh, actually takes on the role of president. Usually you think that the Minister of Economics mm. or, you know, so, I don't know, in some countries the Minister of the Army, mm. of Defense. Um, but it's actually quite unusual to have someone who comes from the education sector um, take on the, the role of, uh, of governance of the country. How did that happen for you? As I mentioned earlier, uh, it was a, how should I say, I guess I was a safe bet. Uh, a safe bet. Yeah, okay. well, in terms of uh, <laughs> a lot of people wanting to be uh, president, and I think uh, uh, at the point where the... The election was made. Um, there were polarizing uh, figures on either side, and I think I, uh, I, uh, I was um, considered uh, someone who uh, more people can live with uh, when it comes to politics than maybe <laughs> others. Uh, so I, you know, I'd like to think also because we are the new at the time, uh, a whole group of uh, younger uh, parliamentarians. Mm-hmm. And I think they made that happen. Otherwise, I don't think it would have happened because uh, we're, of course, a, a country that is uh, uh, very strong on culture. And uh, although women are um, considered uh, leaders in the community, in, in our own uh, extended families, uh, in the political space, uh, women have been kind of uh, very... Uh, not that they're inactive, but they haven't been uh, given the opportunity to mm. to participate as uh, we would like uh, in the political space. And in fact, at the time I uh, uh, became elected to our parliament, I was the only female uh, can uh, I mean uh, parliamentarians. When, when, when was, when was this was in 20, uh, 2012 when I came. Twenty twelve, you were the wow. only female. Yeah, I was the only one. Yeah, and then uh, the term that I became president, there are three of us. This current term, and this is the first time we've ever had uh, three women in our parliament. So we have a long way to go, but I think uh, it's. Uh, it's it's an opportunity to be sitting in this position and mm, to uh, encourage our uh, women, our young women, to uh, to aspire to do more than uh, 
and uh, contribute Super. to our communities. Yes. Yeah. And you also mentioned the young people who were there. So did you have the support of younger people? Well, I, I think, as I said, a lot of the members of our uh, party, the coalition that we formed to uh, form the current government, uh, many of them were younger uh, members. Uh, and this was their first time to come into parliament and they aspired to do something different. And I think uh, I I was part of that. You fit that bill. I fit that, fit that bill, yes. Yeah, so oh, fantastic. Here I am. <laughs> Well, President, you said that um, from the perspective of others who were perhaps uh, more extremist on one side or the other, um, you were a safer bet. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was an interesting term that you used because if it, if there is no safe bet, it is for the Pacific Islands on issues of climate change. And you and I have known each other now for a few years. Uh, and I just wondered over those years during which you have had the leadership of your country, of the Climate Vulnerable Forum, how do you feel about the um, growing awareness? Uh, I hope it's growing, but you you can you, you can disagree um, mm. of vulnerability, especially of the acutely vulnerable populations of the world. I'd be interested in your reaction to the 1.5 degree report that the Marshall mm-hmm. Islands was mm-hmm. so helpful in landing in the Paris Agreement as a requirement of the IPCC. And also to your thoughts on what has happened since the 1.5 degree report. Was it actually a, a watershed moment for the world and are we beginning to wake up? Well, uh uh, I think the IPCC report was a water, watershed moment. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, the world uh, really took that moment and ran with it. You know, we could have done uh, more in recognizing that report. There are still countries who don't uh, necessarily uh, believe or uh, accept the uh, 1.5 uh, uh, report. And so uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, but it's it's part of our work in trying to continue to make people believe that this is happening for us, or it is happening to us, and uh, and that we need to take a bolder action than what we've done, uh, because there is no other way around it. You know, we either take action now or we reap the consequences. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, for countries like Marshall Islands, the consequences are dire. You know, it's either, you know, we yeah. fix this or we disappear. Because that's, exactly. that's our that's the option for us. Yeah. And so, you know, this uh, idea of being optimistic, I mean, we have to be optimistic that the uh, why that people will come together that there mm-hmm. is really humanity in people that we uh, mm-hmm. we are responsible people and we care about each other i hate to think that uh, that the the humanity is not there and that people don't care about other uh, countries and cultures and people uh, disappearing from the face of the earth i mean if i don't trust that or have that optimism then i, I would just give up i mean what is uh, So two things uh, keep me going, this optimism that uh, there is uh, uh, good uh, in people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then secondly, that there is technology Mm -hmm. that could come and help us figure out what we can uh, make commitment to, to make it happen. 
Hmm. Very interesting that you put your, your finger on those two. And mm-hmm. I, I must say, I, I mirrored both of those. Mm-hmm. I mirror my, my faith in humanity mm-hmm. and in the goodness of the mm-hmm. core mm-hmm. Uh, of our souls. Um, and also a uh, huge uh, trust in technologies that we have and that we will continue to, to invent. So I'm very much with you on that one. Um, President, and your reaction to the extraordinary growth of the youth movement uh, that we have seen since since Greta uh, sat by herself in front of the Swedish parliament and now the huge uh, growth of that movement that has just really exploded. Mm-hmm. What, what is your reaction to that? Well, I, again, you know, I'm optimistic because of uh, the youth. Uh, they've uh, really um, put their finger on the, the pulse of what needs to be done and uh, to encourage leaders to take on more uh, riskier, uh, you know, actions than what we've uh, used to. Uh, from the Marshall Islands, we brought uh, five youth to the conference, and mm-hmm. they've been very active since yesterday. In fact, just before coming here, I met with them just to try to gauge, you know, what they got out of the uh, the activities they've been engaging uh, thus far. They participated in the uh, climate march on uh, on Friday, Friday, and then uh, yesterday, of course, they were in the youth summit. So they they learn a lot. They were, uh, you know, of course. Uh, Coming from the Marshall Islands to New York is is, is quite a big, yeah, uh, I would big say. leap. So, yes. but I think they're uh, they're learning, and uh, I, I'm so glad that they came. I think our uh, challenge now is how do we make uh, good on uh, on uh, on the youth participation in our decision making process, mm-hmm. and that's what we discussed. You know, I you know I wanted to hear from them on how we can uh, incorporate uh, the youth. Uh, voice in our decision-making pro- uh, process what, in the what Marshall Islands. What did they Islands. suggest? What did you hear from them? Well, they they have a, a number of recommendations on uh, what we could do. Um, of course, uh, they don't want us to uh, patronize them. They want us to see them as uh, as uh, people with uh, with concrete uh, ideas uh, that they, they bring to the table and that we should take them more seriously. I think they have a feeling that uh, sometimes... How old are these five young people? Uh, they're um, just in their uh, early 20s. Mm. Yeah. So some of them just, a uh, couple of them have just finished uh, high, uh, high school and are starting college. Right. And uh, others have uh, uh, finished college. Uh, so they don't want good. to be patronized. They want to be taken yeah. as adults, yes. full adults, mm-hmm. as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, did they have any, or are they are they still finding their ground or did they have any concrete suggestions for their president? Yeah. Well, they've uh, have ac- actually have uh, a, num- uh, a declaration that they did. They've had a couple of youth dialogues before we came and have come up with a declaration on uh, on uh, what they would like to see their government uh, working on and getting um, yeah, uh, busy with. So uh, that's a good beginning. I think we have a long way to go yet. The government itself has a youth bureau, but it has been kind of sleeping at the wheel. So we got to rejuvenate that. And uh, I think a, a lot of what they're suggesting is that better coordination takes place. There are a number of youth groups that are doing various activities related to climate change and other issues and that uh, they don't feel the coordination is there and that we there's got to be some uh, better coordination so that they can be more effective. You know what I find fascinating about that, President Heine, is that um, 
I, I think there's a perspective that would say that from the point of view of young people in the Marshall Islands, they would be looking beyond the Marshall Islands to the countries that have the highest emissions and pointing the finger at those countries and saying, you get your act together, which they would be totally justified in saying. What I find fascinating about what you've just shared with us is that the young people are, I'm sure, also keeping large economies to account, but also looking domestically to say even we, most acute acutely vulnerable country in the world, arguably, uh, completely a non-emitter in the past, the present, and the future, because Marshall Islands will never be uh, an emitter. Um, but even such a country as vulnerable as the Marshalls, um, with arguably no international responsibility, even we should coordinate better. Mm-hmm. That That's a Very astonishing. Well, I think, uh, you know, we've been modeling that, leading from the front, even though we know that we're not uh, emitting, you know, hardly any uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions into the atmosphere. uh, We still are at the forefront of this fight because, uh, as I say, we need to lead from the front. Otherwise, uh, you know, we cannot just sit here and expect other people to take our cause. We have to also do what we can. And so I think this is uh, has been communicated to our young people. They also have a responsibility to do whatever they can do uh, in our own community. Um, of course, they are out there in the international arena when there are conferences where they can bring uh, to the international community our experiences mm-hmm. so that they can uh, uh, raise awareness and create uh, more uh, uh, solidarity with other uh, other people in other countries. Uh, but at the same time, I think we take this on as a as a responsible uh, uh, responsible people. We need to take action. So that's what we're doing with uh, trying to create our own. Um, I mean, we've created our uh, 2050 strategy plan. We've uh, up our NDCs, and then we're uh, beginning to work on our national a- adaptation plan, mm. uh, which is our we call it our national survival plan. So I was going to yeah, say it probably has to be much more than adaptation. It is. It is uh, survival because otherwise, uh, you know, the Marshall Islands might not be there. So exactly. we're looking at extreme. Uh, uh, strategies to make sure that we continue to remain viable into the Absolutely. future. Absolutely, your national survival yes, plan. Yes, yeah. I'm assuming there are many other Pacific islands that are doing the same. Uh, I know that uh, Fiji, for one, has already done their uh, adaptation plan, and other countries are coming along. We're, I think, we're all moving away from just uh, mitigation and looking at uh, adaptation sure. because that's where we need to take that's, the. That's your the priority. Action. That's our priority yes, now. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's where you know we need the international uh, support. Indeed. Because uh, adaptation is quite expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, we cannot talk about uh, building up our islands. Uh, with the meager resources we have. So uh, I think the international uh, commitment and uh, support is uh, what we're out here also to advocate for. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very understandable. Mm-hmm. President, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity for this chat today, but also thank you to you and to the marshals for the mm-hmm. leadership that you've been showing for so many years. Mm-hmm. Well, likewise, uh, I thank you for your also your leadership because it's people like you that inspire us also to also continue the 
uh, to lead and to uh, do what we can. So thank you. Thank you you very much. Thank you. So that was um, amazing to have a chance to speak to President Heine uh, about so many of those different issues that she's facing. Uh, What do you guys leave this conversation with? Well, I was kind of very moved by her clarity in communicating the predicament uh, her and her, her people are in. And, you know, it's a small country with a small economy. I was looking like the Netherlands are just about to spend 80 times the GDP of the Marshall Islands on, on sea defenses. And I, I just can't, I don't, I, you know, I think economically, although they're, they're doing amazing work, uh, trying to develop new models uh, to deal with sea ingress, you know, fundamentally, the, the country is facing an existential crisis. And I think it's, it's a political crisis for us all. And, uh, and she's uh, very effective at communicating that. I think it's also interesting to remember that the Marshall Islands were also used as a, I hate to use the word playground, but I think that was the attitude, playground for atomic bombs. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just to, you know, for us, the rest of us to find out what an atomic bomb would do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so this is not the first time that they're actually dealing and facing with existential threats. And, you know, my my deepest admiration for, for President Heineff, but also for all Marshallese people who are valiantly and courageously facing yet another existential threat and are doing it honestly with a deep sense of commitment to their own people and a deep sense of what we call optimism, right? Yeah. Which is an absolute stubborn attitude of we are going to solve this and realizing that they need everyone to help, but uh, but certainly not giving up. It's that it, it was interesting speaking to her. I was reminded, um, and again, you know, much as what you said there, Paul, just the, the the role which she's playing to kind of you know bring the world's attention towards this existential crisis for them is very moving. And I was reminded, you mentioned Tony de Brum earlier, Christiana, of the close of the of the COP in Paris in 2015, when Tony gave the microphone to Selena Lim. Do you remember that the young Marshallese woman who was there with him and. Just that, that sort of attitude of, of passing the baton to the next generation to use their voices um, was so evident. And it's such a, it's such a beautiful culture. It's, it's, it's so sad that they're facing this, but they're doing it with such dignity. Um, they deserve all of our support and respect. I was just with Celine actually just oh, really? a few days ago. Okay. Um, and uh, she continues to write beautiful poems. Uh, and she read out yet another poem about um, the predicament that they're in. Predicament is a very soft word uh, for the existential threat that they have, but also the poem is imbued with, yeah, with that gritty determination to to push forward. So, you know, again, deep admiration to them. Yes. And before we wrap up, I want to encourage our listeners, if you have not seen where the Marshall Islands are in the Central Pacific, to grab a map or jump on Google Earth and look them up. When you see the vast ocean that surrounds them and you hear President Heine's words and witness her optimism, it really paints a more complete picture of how unique and powerful their leadership is on this issue um, in the midst of their vulnerable situation in the changing climate. That's a very good point. And and as you do that, if you uh, look at the map, then remember that many of those islands are no more than 80 or 100 meters in width. 
That's it. Wow. All right. Thanks, Clay. That's a very good idea. Okay, thanks for joining us this week. We appreciate your time and attention for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Callum Grieve, Freya Newman, Pete Clutton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, and Zoe Cholacantic. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrup. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do hit subscribe and leave us a review. We also love the feedback, podcast at globaloptimism.com. So many of you have been writing in, and we do try to respond to every email. Thanks for that kind of feedback. We really appreciate it. Please keep them coming. We'll see you next week.